0: Supposed to get married? I'm going to just swipe left. I just want somebody to share my life with. Don't partner unless you want to learn how to collaborate because it's hard.
1: You can keep waiting for the fairy tale or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you read my advice in the LA Times, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Damona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another interesting episode of Dates and Mates. No matter how amazing any relationship is, there will always, always be conflict. It's inevitable. As humans, we're going to have a difference of opinion, we're going to have emotions and beliefs, at least occasionally. In the end, it's how you navigate through the tough times that will ultimately determine the longevity of your relationship. That is why Jason Gaddis, relationship teacher and host of the Relationship School podcast, is here to share his methods for navigating conflict in dating and relationships. But first and foremost, you know, we got a dish. Our headline today is, Will Those Viral 36 Questions Actually Lead to Love? Then later in Dear Demona, I'll tackle the burning question, After an incredible first date, my match left for a two-week business trip. How do I know if he's still interested? All right, lovers, let's dish. D's Dating Dish. The Conversation asks, Do those viral 36 questions actually lead to finding love? Just to give you a little backstory, if the 36 questions doesn't ring a bell for you, these 36 questions of love were first published in 1997 as part of Scientific Research into Relationships. But you probably know them from the 2015 New York Times essay, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. It was written by Mandy Lynn Catron. And the foundation of the 36 questions is this. Originally, there was a researcher named Arthur Aaron and his colleagues who had a group of strangers sit in this study and ask a series of questions that became progressively more intimate in context and they found that through the gradual increase in disclosure between strangers they increased in closeness and after the study they found that people really felt bonded they 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 fell in love they had friendships they really felt like they knew this stranger and In the 2015 essay, they then said, okay, if we can apply this to people looking to fall in love, what would happen? If you ask these 36 questions, then could you know enough about this person to actually fall in love with them, even if they were a stranger? Now, this new article from The Conversation unpacks this theory and comes to the conclusion that the 36 questions are an unlikely way to lead to love. I know you're wondering, Demona, what's an example of the 36 questions? So like, they're in three different sets. As I said, they increase in intensity. Set one had questions like, what do you feel most grateful for in your life? Set two had questions like, what's your most treasured memory? And set three had questions like, when did you last cry in front of another person or by yourself? And so as you see, this actually kind of mirrors something that you've heard me say on the show before in how you disclose information. The first, what do you feel in your life is most, you're most grateful for? That's sort of a baseline of where are you? What do you value? I, I know I'm like always talking about goals and values. You're gonna hear again later in the show. But that is a an assessment of values. The second question, what is your most treasured memory? You've heard me say before how nostalgia and memories are actually a great way to shortcut to intimacy because as you dive into memories, you get into a more reflective, emotional place and It actually can trigger memories in the other person that are similar that can make you then feel bonded. Even though you have different memories and you've had different experiences, you start to look for the similarities. And you know, I'm always talking about looking for similarities over differences when you're on dates. And then the set three example, when did you last cry in front of another person? That's vulnerability. And You know, I said on the Drew Barrymore show, vulnerability is the new black. We are at a place now where we want people to be transparent and authentic. But you're probably asking yourself, how much is too much? And I've answered that question many times on the show. What do I really mean when I say be vulnerable and open up and how quickly— Like, can that happen on the first date? Should that happen on the first date? Or is that too much too soon? And I will answer that in just a moment. But first, I just want to turn our attention back to this article that put the 36 questions back in the spotlight and came to a conclusion about whether or not these 36 questions actually can lead to love. And they focused on the original research, which as I said before, it never measured whether people developed feelings of love directly after the experiment or in the future. But the study did do a follow-up with most of the matched pairs of participants. And so what they found was that 57% had a follow-up conversation after the study. You know, like when you say to somebody like, oh, we should hang out. Totally. Yeah, let's hang out. And then... It turns out that after doing this the 36 questions, only 57% had a follow-up conversation, which when you consider for a scientific study, like actually 57% is kind of a lot, but it's only a little more than half. 35% did something together, actually, you know, went somewhere, did something, actually were like, <laughs> oh yeah, let's talk about the thing that we're going to do and let's actually do it. And 37% went to sit together in class because remember, this was an academic study. So those people then were like, oh, I know this person. I'm not a stranger in this class anymore. And so then they actually had contact in class with that person. So according to this article, which we will, of course, link to in the show notes, the 36 questions don't lead to love. They never were intended to lead to love. But what they do is they help us figure out what is really important in a relationship. And actually, I, I hosted a TV show called A Question of Love that was sort of inspired by this theory. And the producers of the show said, what would happen if people who were already in relationships, instead of asking these specific 36 questions, we use these 36 questions as a foundation for getting to values, getting to beliefs, getting to vulnerability, getting to nostalgia, getting to build memories, and unpacking all of that together and asking and honestly answering the questions that really matter in the foundation of a relationship. Scientifically speaking, not these random questions as part of the study, but questions that actually factor into compatibility in relationships. And so we put three couples through this experiment for the purposes of your television viewing enjoyment, but also you know, for me as the relationship expert in the series and host, I really was curious to see how quickly we could get to the root of what a relationship is built on. And I'm not going to tell you what happened at the end of the 30 days that the couple spent with me. They had to declare whether they were going to stay together or we had moved them in together for the purposes of the experiment, whether somebody was going to move out and they actually needed more time and more space. I won't tell you what happened. You can watch the series. I think you can download it on Amazon or Apple TV or wherever you you watch your, we'll call them legacy TV shows. But it's called A Question of Love. And the exploration of it, to me, was fascinating. And I think you would find it very interesting. And what I take away is that you can develop intimacy with a person more quickly through the kinds of questions that you ask. And my takeaway for you is hopefully that you will not be afraid when you are on a date with someone to get to the heart of what their values are, what their beliefs are, what their goals for the future are. And we tend to stay away from conflict when we're in a new relationship, but it's so revealing. It can really Teach you how you communicate, and it can show you how to be a better listener and to be more authentic in the relationship. And we'll talk about that later in the show. So I encourage you to take a look at the thirty-six questions, and really, what I'd love for you to do the next time you prepare for a date. And what Damona just said, prepare for a date. You absolutely should be preparing before you go to meet someone new. You should be thinking about first of all, what are my my values. And then what am I curious to know about this person? So make it a little challenge for yourself. Let's see how quickly you can get to that. Now, this doesn't mean dump all your all your stuff on the table. We all have stuff, but, but you have to remember that information needs to be earned. And there, there's no substitute for time. So you do have to spend some time But as you go through the dating process and you start to learn which questions are clarifying in that, you might be able to get to that point of clarity a little bit faster. Well, if you are ready to test your compatibility and find your match, let me help you redesign your dating profile with my Profile Starter Kit so you can get online easily and onto your dating success story without necessarily... taking as long as going through all 36 questions. (laughs) It's a lot faster than that. And it's free for a limited time only at datesandmates.com. We also will be announcing new coaching programs and opportunities very soon. So the best way to get on my mailing list and find out when we are opening new programs is also by signing up for that Profile Starter Kit at datesandmates.com. When we come back, Jason Gaddis of the Relationship School will be with us to discuss navigating conflict in dating and relationships. Stick around. Welcome back. Jason Gaddis is an author, podcaster, speaker, and personal trainer for relationships. Jason started off as a licensed professional counselor with a private practice. And since then, he has founded the Relationship School, a company dedicated to helping people work out their differences and improve their relationships. He also hosts the Relationship School podcast, where he teaches people how to build street-level relationship skills. His book, Getting to Zero, How to Work Through Conflict in Your High-Stakes Relationships, is out now. And I'm very excited to have him here for the first time on the Dates and Mates podcast. Please give big smooches to Jason Gaddis.
0: What's up? Good to be here.
1: Oh, it's so good to have you here, and I'm so glad. You're talking about the hard stuff in the relationship school. First of all, let's just define conflict for everyone um, as you see it in the relationship school and in your book, Getting to Zero.
0: Yeah, I define it as a rupture, a disconnection, or an unresolved issue between two people. Mm -hmm.
1: So when we're talking about conflict in relationships, and in this book, it's not just conflict, but this is like anyone that you you're relating to could be your parents, yeah. right? Your kids, your yeah. The
0: book's targeted toward high stakes relationship, which is family partnerships, business partnerships, you know, work or some work relationships. Yeah, where where if we have a lot to lose, right? If it doesn't go well, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So where it matters, <laughs> it really matters. Yeah. So talk to me about uh, getting to zero. Yep. I know what it means, but for our listeners, can you define? why that is the title of the book and what Getting to Zero actually means.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, so I take a trigger scale when we get triggered by humans. We go from zero being in a good place to all the way up to 10, which is not a good place. We're sympathetically aroused and activated on our in our nervous system. And we act and react in ways that aren't so great the higher up that number goes, right? We shut down, we blame, we hit, we scream and yell, we raise our voice. So uh, we uh, that's all fairly normal human behavior, but we want to get back to a good place, which is zero as much as we can in our most important relationships. And it's through that process of getting to zero, getting back to a good place over and over that builds security in long-term relationships.
1: And if you are feeling triggered, let's say like with your partner, your conflict level is pretty low, but if you're feeling triggered, mm-hmm. say from work and you're, you're at a nine at work. Yeah, that's bad. I've been there, Jason. It's happened before. (laughs) Yeah, totally. How does that impact, even if you are at like a baseline zero or one with your partner, how can that impact your your romantic relationship then or other areas of your life?
0: Well, I mean, I think most of us are probably pretty stressed out in general these days. Um, We just have a lot going on in our lives. And then we have the global situation and the pandemic and everything. And it just adds layers of low grade stress into our field. And then if we disagree with someone at work and we're at work all day long, even if we're on zoom and we just have uh, negative vibes between us and another person that, that, you know, releases cortisol in our nervous system and our body, and it's not good for us long-term. And then we come home with that. And if we're in a good place, then no problem. Our partner can help resource us and they can be a safe place for us to vent and get support and then go back into the trenches the next day a little more resourced from our, our awesome partnership. Mm-hmm. That's ideal. But some of us go home to a, a shitty, crunchy relationship and then we're dealing with even more stress. Because so many of us are living with a lot of chronic stress, low grade stress, we don't even notice the water we're swimming in, right? Some some of us even grew up in households that were a four and That was like zero. That was considered zero, but it's not good for us. Again, it creates long-term health problems if we're living in that chronic environment all the time.
1: You made me think of something, Jason, because I would say I lived in a house when I was a kid that was uh, much higher than a four when my parents divorced Mm -hmm. when I was 17. So that tells you a little bit about what the prior 17 years of my life were like. There was a lot of conflict, constant conflict. Mm. between my parents who are both lovely people and I'm very close and they're great parents, but they could not get along and it was constant, constant drama. And I will say like when I first moved into a relationship with my husband who comes from a family that has a lot more tools, I would say, for um, managing conflict. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, his baseline is just like always how can I get to zero? It uh-huh. can feel like nothing is happening. And I hear this from a lot of my listeners, too, where they're like, I was in a lot of volatile, passionate, you know, just high drama, not even high stakes, but high drama relationships yeah. before. And then when you move into something that's more secure, it can feel like, wait, where what happened to all of the we get addicted almost to that yep. higher stress level.
0: That's right. And, and then we think something's wrong with the partnership or the relationship, mm-hmm. right? Um, because it's so quote, quote, boring or, or kind of mellow and chill. And a lot of people, it's a good point, a lot of people, especially if you grew up in hostile or aggressive or or intense environments, there is a level of addiction that that we have to that kind of the hormone release. And so that's why we're attracted and drawn to Relationships that aren't that healthy for us, right? Because it feels familiar. It's what we know. It, you know on, on some weird level, it feels good. So, a new, quote, healthy upgrade can feel disorienting.
1: Mm. What do we do about that?
0: <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm working with someone recently that he's sort of weaning himself off the addiction of volatile kind of ups and downs in his relationship because that was sexy, you know, good sex, big fights followed by total shaming each other and like breakups and then getting back together and like on and on and on. And I was like, dude, is that really what you want to create in your life? Of course not. So he's working on, I have him working on really getting okay with being in his experience, just being with himself, being with discomfort, being with fear, being with pain. And I was like, look, do you want a relationship where you have to leave yourself behind in that volatility to protect yourself? Or would you rather have a relationship where you get to keep yourself, but you might lose the relationship? and so we're we're helping him deepen and enhance his relationship with his self so that it kind of weeds out the people that try to seduce him into this up and down thing.
1: yeah, and I think a lot of those people aren't even realizing that they're doing the up and down thing because that's what's been modeled for them or that's yeah. what's comfortable yeah. for them and you do have to get to that place of I'm okay, no matter like if this isn't the relationship for me fine and i'm going to still be okay but i'm i'm not going to put myself in that constant stress you have to make that choice in a way in the book you outline different types of fights there's five common types of fights can we talk a little bit about the common types of fights and like if there are certain certain types that are more serious or more detrimental to a relationship than others
0: yeah, for sure. Uh, so we have surface fights, uh, value difference fights, projection fights, um, resentment fights, and security fights. So surface fights are, hey, you left the dishes in the sink, I'm pretty triggered by that, or you know, your socks are on the floor. These seemingly innocuous things that we get really upset about. And if we're really upset, it tells us it's really not about that. It's not about the socks. And it's a tributary, that surface fight about something kind of benign is a tributary into one of the other four. And a value difference fight is a deal breaker for some people. And that's something like you find yourself, you're pro-vaccine and someone else is anti-vaccine, for example. That's a very large value difference that's going to be pretty hard to work out, especially if you're raising kids and you can't figure out you know whose values you're going to align with here. Religion, of course, kids, no kids, living over on the East Coast or the West Coast. These are value difference fights that people can get into. And if we don't know how to accept each other's values and work with them in a relationship, we're going to want the other person to come over to our values. And that alone creates a lot of fighting and tension and feeling judged and criticized.
1: Yeah. And values are actually one of the things that I see as a predictor of long-term compatibility. Having shared values, it's something yeah. that I teach my My clients and my listeners to look for. But there are some values that are, they can shift a little bit, right? But ultimately, I think the bottom line is you've got to know your values as well. And I see sometimes conflicts come up when people aren't really sure of their position. And then it becomes a dialogue about trying to convince the other person or like trying to even get clarity ourselves. Do you feel like, if, if there is a difference in values and one of those major factors that they're like, should we even keep talking about it totally. or is there yeah. a different repair strategy?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I, I think this can be part of the dating process is really trying to dig down and drill down into people's values and what they would die for, stand for, or fight for. Because this is what happens to couples a lot is they, they one person's into growth and development, for example. Let's go to therapy. Let's get some coaching. Let's get some help. Let's do a workshop. Let's read a book on how to improve our relationship. And the other person's like, What? We're fine. What are you talking about? We're okay. Like that stuff's bullshit or it's woo woo or whatever. And that's a big value difference, actually. And that's going to create problems because you can't get to zero and you can't work through a conflict with someone who doesn't want to learn how. Mm. So that's that can be a deal breaker and you want to find these things out early on when you're when you're dating and getting together with people. It's like, wait, if things get hard, what what's your style? What do you do?
1: True. Are there other things that you feel like fall under those deal breaker values that you must talk about when you're dating someone before you
0: fully commit? <laughs> I mean, that, that's to me, the single biggest one, because if we get into a snag, which we will, if we're going the distance, like five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in a relationship, you're going to get into some snags. There's going to be messes that both of you make. And if you're with someone who refuses to take responsibility for their part, you can't go anywhere, right? That's, that's impossible to deal with. So you want to, to me, we're just sort of in the ballpark of trying to, Trying to find people who are open minded and who will take personal responsibility if they make a mistake. That is essential because so many people find themselves in relationships with people that can't and won't do that. And it's really hard, almost impossible. It's very hard.
1: Talk to me about childhood projections. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, it's sort of um, therapy speak, but it's really cool because you start to see that we tend to find ourselves with people in a long-term relationship that remind us of our family of origin, usually our parents, mm-hmm. right? Or our caregivers. Mm-hmm. And we then project onto them. Like if I, you have a, a look on your face, it might trigger me into kind of a pretty upset place just because you're tired. But I misperceive your tired look as you're angry with me because I grew up with a mother that had that same look. And it wasn't that she was tired. It, it was that she was angry like all the time. And I got hurt. I got really hurt. So when you give when you look that way, I get scared and I want to protect myself. Hmm. Sometimes it's like we, we tend to project our parental figures onto our partner, and if we're not aware of that projection going on, it's just harder. I think.
1: Hmm. That's very interesting because I have no control over what my face is doing.
0: <laughs> exactly. My that. wife doesn't either. <laughs>
1: So I want to get into some of the tools that that you recommend in the book for just, like, even if we can give people today just a little bit of language that helps them yeah. reframe when they're having conflicts, how to sort of neutralize. I think we, we I mean, we live in such an aggro, like, rah, society, right? <laughs> Where, like, things like, escalate very quickly. Yeah. There's just so much anger and tension and you know stress that I think we're we're carrying around. So if there's ways that we can like meet, even if somebody is coming at us from a place of maybe feeling feeling triggered because yeah. of either childhood projections or value differences or anything, like what can we do to diffuse that and not take that on and continue to amp it up to a ten?
0: There's a a couple things like. The one thing you want to start with, I think, if especially the little mini example there you shared of, let's say you're coming at me with some energy and you're triggered about something I did or didn't do, or something from your life. I want to offer generosity by listening. And I have an acronym that's easy to remember for people that's, I just call it LUFU, L-U-F-U. And it's a commitment you make that I'm committed to listening to you until you feel understood. L-U, listen, until F, feel, you feel. And then you understood, L U F U, and in that process, there's eight steps in the book, but the the three that matter most to me are: I want to take responsibility for anything I did in the listening process. Here. So am you're like, you did this thing the other day. I want to not defend myself. I want to say, yeah, got it. I I did that thing, so I take ownership, and then I want to empathize and I imagine the impact on you, Mona, was you felt scared and hurt, and it makes sense. That's the validation part, the last step. It makes sense, three words. That's the easiest way to validate someone. That makes sense. That you feel that way, that you feel hurt, that you felt scared and that you're upset now. Makes sense to me. Cause I did that thing that you don't like. And of course it hurt your feelings. Like that alone, just those three things is gonna take it down a big notch for you, right? You're gonna be like, finally. And you might come out with more. Like you might have another layer you wanna tell me about a complaints or a resentment might surface. And you're like, yeah, and you always, and there was this un- one time yesterday and you did this thing. I continue to stay in my listening seat until you feel like I'm understanding you. And then eventually you're hopefully gonna be generous also with me and you'll listen to what happened for me, right? Hmm.
1: So important and makes total sense. And I can do it, I can do it every time with my husband. I can't do it with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Harder can't do it. I depends can't on do who it. With, right, right. It's interesting how it's it is really relational. It's really situational, and it depends on like all the history. Right, we're thinking of like yeah, like a, I've probably told this joke on the on the show before, but you know why your parents push your buttons? Why? Because they're the ones who programmed them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like it's it's interesting watching also how like my husband relates to my mom because he doesn't have all of the prior
0: totally the history
1: yeah all the prior conversations where you assume oh it's going to go that way because it always went that way before and i what i love about getting to zero and the method that you just shared with us is that it puts us back in the power seat of like yeah. it doesn't have to go that way if you change your behavior you may get a different result if you approach it differently yeah. you always have a choice
0: completely yeah one of the greatest gifts i ever gave my parents on my healing process with my family was just listening to them i stopped eventually i stopped trying to change them and that created way less tension and then i i took an interest and i became the adult you know and um it was really hard i'm not going to lie but now we have a much better relationship because I'm not asking them to be different and they feel like I, I am genuinely interested in who they are as people.
1: Mm, that's really lovely. I, I hope to achieve that one day. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is really hard. I mean, it's even with any yeah. relationship, and especially for my listeners in new relationships as well you're still figuring out, like you're finding out where the landmines are buried and you're like doing this dance, this emotional dance. So the tools that you're giving and getting to zero are so helpful because they can help you write the terms of your relationship and the way that you communicate. And like, you don't really win anything by being right. That's what I'm learning.
0: Yeah. Stan Taken says you can be right or you can be in a relationship.
1: Right. Exactly. (laughs) And I, I see that that's, that's really hard, especially for people that have been, you know, what some of my clients would call like chronically single when you have been so practiced in Mm. being in your solo identity in your identity as this person who, how you walk through life your friendships your work relationships that incorporating another person in it does require a lot of compromise and it does require a lot of listening and that can be a huge lifestyle shift if you're not accustomed to it
0: that's right i mean i always tell people look don't get married and don't partner unless you want to learn how to collaborate unless you're willing to like actually be a team player because it's hard it's not always fun it's not always easy and some of us love our independence and we love that we get to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We don't have to check in with anybody. And, But I, I think there's something really powerful when we partner that we, I don't know, there's just such a growth opportunity there to become even more fully who we are as people.
1: That's, you, you took the words right out of my mouth because I, I do see it as a real opportunity. I feel like I have learned and I've grown the most as a person through my relationships, I'll say relationships with an S because like through my relationship, you know, not just like all of these high stakes relationships, like, oh my God, being a parent has taught me all of the things, all of the things they will, they will bring up all your stuff, right? Yeah, (laughs) You'll really learn who you are. But I do also feel like our best relationships are ones that teach us more about who we are and how, how to show up. Yeah. Well, you have one additional acronym. SHORE. Tell us what SHORE is.
0: Sure. Yeah. Speak honestly and openly in order to repair effectively. And it's just a it's a fun way to try to remember that it's almost like we've been out in the stormy seas and we want to bring this whole thing to the shore where it's a little calmer. And it's speaking. So Lufu is listening, SHORE is speaking. And if we're going to speak, there's another eight step process there. The punchline there is if you take responsibility for what you did or didn't do, that alone is gonna help the other person's nervous system chill out big time. And a lot of us don't do that. We speak, we lead with what the other person did wrong and how we're right and how they made us feel and blah, 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 blah. So I don't I don't really recommend that. Um, I think it's just more efficient to lead with, hey, honey, I just, you open to having a conversation? Yep, I did that thing again. Uh, that I can see it really upset you, makes sense you're upset. I just want to know how you feel and if there's anything else you want to tell me about. Mm, That's beautiful.
1: I really wonder, mm, we've talked about the different kinds of conflicts and the different kinds of relationships. Are there some relationships where you just can't get to zero? Yes. Are there some situations? Yes, you just got to like cut your losses. How do you know?
0: Yeah, well, family is an easy place to identify those families or our family of origin, in laws. Where look, the persons who they are, they have way different value systems, beliefs. Perhaps uh, they're maybe we perceive them as very closed minded and and just not even remotely open. It's going to be hard to get anywhere with those people. And then sometimes we find ourselves married to someone like that. That's really brutal because you're sharing a life with someone, or so you thought. And if they continue to close the door on working through anything, you know, there's, you just can't get to zero. You can get to zero on your own. And I, later in the book toward the, I think it's the second to last chapter. I talk about some ways you can heal and work through an unresolved conflict without the other person present. Cause some people will never come to the table. And that's important to be able to, cause look, I don't, I don't want to stay angry. Maybe at this person, my entire life, I just don't, it's like energy draining. Right? So How can I get to either gratitude or appreciation or just appreciating myself at the very least and sort of letting go of that relationship forever? You know, there's things we can do there, but it's different. It's a little more efficient when we have a willing person. Certainly. And we, as
1: I said earlier, we learn relationally. So uh, there's there's an opportunity in being able to do that. But yeah, you have to be willing to do the self-work, which I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is. Um, you have a podcast, the Relationship School. Tell me what's what's coming down the pike on the Relationship School, or or any um, exciting episodes that you've had this this year that you'd like for us to check yeah. out. Yeah,
0: well, one of them, since we're on the subject, is the five types of people you don't want to be in a relationship with ever. That's a recent one we, I recorded that seemed to get a lot of traction. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, what do I need to avoid? You know, the hint there is like narcissistic types of people, right? We want to avoid those. But yeah, i'm uh, I'm mostly excited to be doing my spoken word poetry more, right? Starting another book. We train relationship coaches, so we have a big coaching training that starts in September. Yeah, my wife and I just are finishing a couple's coaching training course that's been amazing. So it feels like uh, moving towards summer in a in a good way right now.
1: Thank you so much for being
0: here, Jason. Yeah, you got it. Damona, thanks so much for having me.
1: You can follow Jason on Instagram at Jason Gaddis. That's J-A-Y-S-O-N-G-A-D-D-I-S. And you can learn more about his school at RelationshipSchool.com. Plus, be sure to check out his podcast by the same name, The Relationship School. And his book... Getting to Zero is an invaluable tool. We will put a link to it and all of the links I just mentioned in the show notes. In a moment, I have our question of the week. My date and I really clicked, but now that he's been out of town for two weeks, I'm not so sure he's still interested. How can I tell? Stay with me. You know I've always got you covered with your dating dilemmas, so let's get into the question of the week.
0: Dear Damona, help me. This
1: is an Instagram message from a listener named Lisa. She says, hi, Damona. I recently went on a date with a guy and we really seemed to click on the date. The conversation flowed well and we had a lot in common. We even talked about going to the driving range on a second date. I knew he was going out of town for two weeks the day after our date for a work trip, but two weeks is a long time to wait between the first and second date. We've texted a few times about how his trip is going, and I've asked a few would-you-rather questions. He's answered all of my texts, but isn't asking me anything back. I'm having a hard time telling if he's still interested, and I'm not sure if my texts are just boring to him. How do I keep the momentum going during these two weeks? Should I call or suggest a video date while he's out of town? Any advice is appreciated. Thank you. I got to tell you, Lisa... I definitely relate to your situation because I had a similar uh, scenario. My husband, when I first met him, we had a first date, and then he was going out of town, I think for about two weeks. And I'll be honest, I was dating another guy at the time, but as soon as I met my husband, the guy who's now my husband, I was like, oh, yeah, I can't date this other guy, like... I need to date him and I need to lock it down. So I'm a planner, Lisa, in case you can't tell from listening to the show. I like to plan things. And I was like, I need to lock it down. So this guy knows that I'm interested. And like, it's not, it's certainly not the only thing I have going on. So I just straight up was like, hey, can we get a date on the books for when you return? Cause I'd really like to see you. I mean, he kind of said like, oh, I'd love to see you again. You know, I'm going out of town and like very casual, but I was like, can we go ahead and just book that in? And I will admit, Lisa, he said that was a little bit, he was like, oh, okay, like, is she really that busy? It was a little bit off-putting for him. Thank goodness he said yes anyway, and he showed up, and here we are today. But I would say, if I could take anything away from my almost mistake, is you don't wanna be too thirsty. (laughs) You don't wanna be too aggressive with it. And you have to remember that your timeline is not necessarily anyone else's timeline. And that actually applies to various areas of your life. Like, you know, that could be your timeline for work. That could be your timeline for friendships. And certainly in a new relationship, your timeline is not necessarily his timeline. And you said that he's been out of town for two weeks for work. So his mind is probably focused on work. And while he may be interested in you, it may feel a little bit distracting that he's getting these would you rather and sort of date questions on in text before you've really developed a relationship and rapport. So you've heard me say on the show before, I will just reiterate, we don't wanna get stuck in the texting trap. And the texting trap applies to prior to the date, but it also applies to the first few dates between the first and second date because what we start to do is communicate as if we are already in a relationship with this person, we send the daily text, we do the check-in. And what that does, Lisa, is it, it pulls out the anticipation and the, the drive, the driving momentum of seeing each other again, being in one another's presence because you're given him all these little snacks. And it may be an interruption to his workday. So... We want to build anticipation for the next date, for when you're going to see him, but we also, we think that by being in constant communication, that keeps them threaded, that keeps them on the hook, but it actually could have the opposite effect where that person then feels like, oh, I don't have that yearning, that longing, that that need to see her because I feel like I've been talking to her this whole time. I absolutely would not suggest a video date. Like a video date would be if you know that he's gonna be out of town for three months, or if he lives across the country and you connected and you were like, okay, we have to stay, we have to stay in touch here. A video date is not really a substitute for a second date. Give yourself the gift of that interesting and curiosity-driven, passion-fueled second date. Give yourself that gift. If you keep trying to stay threaded and, and move ahead, you're trying to push ahead to the next phase because you're afraid that what you had initially wasn't enough or that maybe it was, wasn't was real or that it's going to dissipate, the passion is going to dissipate in the time that you spend apart. I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you that absence makes the heart grow fonder. But it's very true in the early phases of the relationship, provided that person has something to look forward to. So my recommendation is to stop the daily communication, to call something back from a prior date. So you mentioned that he was talking about going to the driving range. You can say, "Oh, I found this driving range by my house. Like when you get back, what would be a good day to take me there? Or go out and buy a glove for the driving range. I mean, that's like a low. (laughs) Get some new golf balls. Like something that's a low-cost investment to prove to him that you really are interested. Or maybe pick something else that you discussed and bring it as a callback into the texting, but with purpose. With the purpose being, we're talking, we're not just chitty-chatting. We're talking about a second date, the next time that we're going to see one another. And then just let the anticipation build as you get to that point. And trust that you're enough, Lisa. Everyone listening, you're enough. What you've said, what you've done on the first date, if it's the right person, you do not need to do so much. You don't need to tap dance to make them interested. You just need to show up as your authentic self. You just need to be real and you just need to let it unfold in its own time. So I know that's really hard to do. Like pick up a hobby, maybe go to the driving range yourself, uh, sit in meditation, read some stoicism, which I'm really big into, but find other ways to occupy your mind instead of taking the anxiety that you may be feeling on what's going to happen in the future of this, which we cannot know, and pushing that forward into your text messages or your video chats. Good luck with this. I really look forward to hearing your updates. I love, love, love hearing from you. And I love giving advice on the show and seeing how it really impacts the choices that you make in love and what comes out of it. So y'all, write to me. I want to hear from you. You can DM me your question just like Lisa did on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You could even send me a voice memo and then you can hear your beautiful voice back on the show. It really helps us understand who we're talking to and what we're dealing with so I can give you the best help possible on the show. 424-246-6255. And do let me know in the DMs which guests and topics you loved, what you'd love to hear more about. Jen, who's one of the moderators in our Facebook, private Facebook group. She's always sending me ideas, which I really, really love and appreciate. And I'm open to hearing from all of you. I'm making this show for you. So keep that in mind and keep sharing the love. We will be back next Tuesday with a mm, a very spicy episode. I have... Erica and Mila of the Good Moms Bad Choices podcast who will be talking about single parent dating. They are so fun and so funny. I cannot wait to have them on the show for you. Until then, I wish you happy dating.